It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. All right. Um, so let's see. What does Ken normally say at the beginning? He says, all right, I'll try to remember. <laughs> all right. And with that familiar music, you know that you're listening to your cheap trick <laughs> audio fanzine. Uh, Ken is not here, but I'm BJ, and I'm joined by two very special guests from the Shabby Road Record Show, Ryan McKay and A.D. Adams. Hey, guys. Well, hey, BJ. What's hey, up? BJ. Thanks for having us on. We've been looking forward to this. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, this would be a lot of fun. Um, I know that you guys are both big Cheap Trick fans, so I thought it would be a lot of fun to do an episode of the show with you guys. And um, definitely people who like uh, the podcast or Cheap Talk should go check out the Shabby Road Record Show because it's a lot of fun. Yeah, Very well, I, podcast. So, up, I, you know, I grew up in Illinois, and if you're not a cheap trick fan in Illinois, they the angry villagers with torches come and run you <laughs> into Missouri. Yeah. So, uh, so when did so you guys you probably each have a pretty different story about how you got into cheap trick or just your story of your cheap trick fandom, huh? Right. Why don't you start, Ad? I you know I don't I'm, know your story about how you got into cheap trick. Well, it happened a long time ago, and. <laughs> Back in back in covered room, wagon times, a room much yeah, <laughs> a room much like this. Um, no, you know, I mean, they just kind of they kind of came out. I, I was hell. I was in high school. <clears throat> yeah, you're right. Maybe covered wagon. You may covered be right wagon. about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there's that. <laughs> I'm done. I'm going home, right? Okay. Uh, no, I. Uh, you know, that's just one of the bands that came out when, when I was in school. I mean, the, the record came out in 77. I graduated high school in 77. Um, do the math. Wow. Woo! Man, um, live. But it was just one of those things, you know, um, disco had kind of creeped into our lives, you know, not mine. But, you know, my friends were buying disco records, and 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 I loved the look of the record, you know, and... and it had everything I liked. It had shtick, but not schlocky stick. I like show bands. I like bands that don't just sit around and, and play music, you know. Um, I like bands like Kiss and Alice Cooper, bands that would, Alex Harvey, bands that would really throw down and, and make you love them. There's something, and when you look at the characters on that first Cheap Trick album, I mean, I'm like, okay, I got to have that, <laughs> you know. And then, um, I mean, some of the song titles, Hot Love, He's a Whore. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm so in. Ballad of TV Violence, I, you know, I was I was big on that. I hadn't really heard them, but it's like, I, I got to check this out. And, and uh, you know, a friend turned me on to it and was like, these guys freaking are great. These guys are great. And, and they were still playing fun rock and roll. Uh, it, it was hooky. It was poppy. And I love pop, but I like rock. So, I mean, to me, it, it had the big guitar riffs, which I'm a huge fan of, Um and and the hooks were just great, and and it had a punk, a little bit of a punk edge too. I mean, it. I think I think the Cheap Trick record more so than in color, you know. Subsequently, but but it had all the things that I really liked, you know. And um, it was a no brainer for me. It was a fresh new band, and and Kiss had done Beth, and I'm like, oh. There you go. Here he goes. You know? Here he goes. So, uh, you know, I, I was looking for something new, and and I and Cheap Trick came along, and by God, they, you know, they they had the right menu. I was I was digging it, man. Well, I, I didn't get into Cheap Trick until I was. Uh, it was actually in the '80s, and I was in junior high. I was probably like 14, 
the first cheap trick record I got was at Budokan. Um, I used to get, my dad would give me like a dollar or two every day for school lunch. And what I would do is I would not eat for a couple of those days. So I'd have about six bucks left over at the end of the week. And I would walk a couple miles to, uh, to Kmart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there at Kmart, they had like this rack of cassette tapes that were four ninety nine, like the nice price and all right, that. Right. <laughs> yep. And I, I remember and so, that sticker. The nice yes. price sticker, yep. <laughs> right. And I found a uh, cheap trick at Budokan, and that was the first cheap trick uh, record, well, cassette that I that I got. So I uh, walked my two miles back and couldn't wait to open, peel that shrink wrap off and uh, put that thing on. And I was like, fuck yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> Make this a record. sandwich when you get home, too. <laughs> right? Yeah, I was really hungry. <laughs> I, was, I was a little lightheaded. Maybe that's why it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah so i put it on and i really dug it now this would have been like 1987 or something like that and uh i started kind of i had a little garage band and stuff and i remember playing my new tape my new at budokan tape for my singer jay and i played clock strikes 10 off of there and i was like dude check out how freaking great this band is they are rocking on this and i played it for him and he just didn't get it he just looked at me and was like that sounds terrible <laughs> and let, you know, let's let's continue our work on the final countdown by Europe. <laughs> and I was like, no, no. <laughs> so oh, don't ever bring that into a conversation again. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was Cherokee. No, that but, either. <laughs> so so yeah, and, and uh, so I dug that record a lot. But it was a few years later before I I went back and got in color, and then. Uh, and it was a few years after that, I'm embarrassed to say, that I finally picked up the first cheap trick record, the uh, the black and white 77 one. And uh, it was really the black and white cheap trick record that just blew me away how great that record was. Because there isn't, if you're a casual cheap trick fan, you don't really recognize any of the songs on it. You know, there isn't the big uh, Dream Police, Surrender, Ain't That a Shame, I Want You to Want Me and all that stuff. That's not... You look at the titles and you go, I don't know any of these songs. But well, they didn't do any songs from. I mean, none of the songs were on Budokan, and Budokan right, is the biggest right, seller. Right, right. There's no song from the first album on the the original Budokan. Right. And why they is really, why and is they that? Had three albums that what? Hey, did they I don't did know. What, I mean, three then live, but they only had three albums to choose from. Yeah. You figured the one would get on there. Yeah. Well, in happened? the set they did Hello Kitties and. I don't remember. Well, speak now or forever hold your peace. I don't think, but at the shows, I don't think they even did like Hot Love. You know, it's hard to think of what song off the first album would have really fit on Budokan. I think Hot Love would have fit pretty well, but they didn't even do that. I don't think no. they did Oh Candy either, so. Or uh, He's a Whore would have been cool. Yeah, they didn't do that either, you know, so they really only had like Hello Kitties and Speak Now, I think, to choose from. Maybe one other. Yeah. Well, it, you know, the, the first Cheap Trick record for me really solidified my fandom of the band because that, that record really did just blow me away with its the energy on it and the songwriting, I think. That's, that's my favorite. Amazing. That, that's my favorite Cheap Trick album. Yeah, mine too. First one. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, In Color was had an, a, lots of great songs as well, but I think the energy behind the first record is what just you know just it's a home run all the way around that record, yeah you know? yeah no doubt and then color's a brilliant record heaven and night's a great record dream police is a great record let's keep going let's go. <laughs> one on one is a great record that's, that's a good record <laughs> you skipped that's all shook up 
Yeah, my story is almost exactly the same as yours, Ryan. It was, I knew of Cheap Trick and I had, I mean, I'm 40. I'm not sure how old you are, but. Oh, you kids. I graduated in 92, <laughs> but I, you know, I was, I had Cheap Trick. Well, you said 87, you got Budokan. And of course, that's the year they had a number one hit with the flame. So it was a whole different Cheap right. Trick going on then. Um, yeah, and so and, that I, that was kind of my MO too. Like these uh, band like Cheap Trick that had a hit on the radio, I, I I wasn't a huge fan of that 80s stuff, so what I would do is like, Cheap Trick, yeah, they sound pretty cool. Let me go back and buy something real early from the 70s. From, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's where I'd start. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a record store where I grew up called Record Rent because they actually used to rent records, you know, like Blockbuster. <laughs> but uh, they didn't rent records anymore, but the guy, he had these boxes in the corner. He had this really weird policy where if he got a record that didn't have the inner sleeve, he would just make it a dollar. No matter what it was, he would just put them in these boxes. Wow. <laughs> it didn't make a lot of sense because you could have just had a, you could have bought some paper sleeves bulk and then just you know <laughs> put yeah, the right? records in there. But so I remember I had like In Color and Budokan and Dream Police just because I bought them for a buck. Um, but yeah, it was the same thing where when I got the first album, it just blew my mind. It's like if you only knew Cheap Trick for In Color and Dream Police, and all of a sudden you get this record and you're like, what the hell is this? It, you yeah, completely, they're a completely different band after you hear that. And it baffles you like why this isn't a, a real popular and heralded record out, you know, because if you think of Cheap Trick, again, the casual fan, you know, yeah. is In Color and uh, and Dream Police and, and Surrender and all that, you know. Yeah. I think the Script Town production, too, really, really illustrates the brilliance of the band themselves, Ryan and I were talking about about Cheap Trick as 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 a group, as, as musicians. You know, because Ryan and I are actual working musicians. Well, barely working. Yeah, I'm not bar- working barely today. Barely working musicians. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think I think the raw truth of Cheap Trick comes out in the first record. In that, not no one in the band is a virtuoso in his own right. Yet each guy. Like Bunny Carlos is—he's no Buddy Rich, he's no Gene Krupa, he's no Barry Moore Barlow, but he didn't have to be. He's—he's he's Bunny Carlos exclusively, and no one plays quite like Bunny Carlos. He's left-handed. I—you know—I never knew that he's left-handed, which when he does his fills and stuff, he's got this odd syncopation to him. Well, that's his left hand coming dominant. He plays on a right-handed kit. I was going to say he plays right-handed, right. does he but not? So that—so he's got that uniquely Bunny Carlos style. You know, you got Tom Peterson and his his incredible rhythm. He, you know, a, a guy who's not a play, afraid to play chords in rock and roll on the bass. You know, um, none of the guys are virtuosos, but yet they blend so well. They play so well together as a band. And the fact that the first album is not overproduced and and with lush tons of strings and and crazy layers of stuff like like what happened with Dream Police and Dream Police is a great record, but. I think there's a rawness to that and, and, and the strength of the band's individual parts come through and show how that they blend as a group better than a lot of bands, M- much, much better than so many of their contemporaries at that time. And I, I think that's, that, that's a big part of the strength of that first album yeah. is the stripped down production and, and the fact that each player... And there's, the parts are sparse. It's not like any of them are overplaying, you know? Right, yeah. Um, I, that's, I think, what I like about that album. And, and what you have on that first record is you have 70s rock, 
glam rock, hard rock, punk, punk? rock, yeah, yeah, like yeah. proto metal. It there's no other album like that that could straddle all of those different like late mid late seventies rock genres and just fit into all of them. And then you have their crazy image that was like nothing else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's 30... it's just like the coolest record ever by the coolest band ever. That's just how it feels, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and and all these years later, it doesn't sound like a cheesy old '70s album. And that's that that's true. Has hold, held up, and that you know that's a tribute to the band, not the the lush fancy tricks you know pulled into you know post production. And I think that's what what really strikes me as as the strength of that album to this day. Um, that that it that it had that then and it maintains it today. It's timeless. Yep. Yeah. It's not bogged down in the '70s sound. I don't think. Yeah, um, I don't think so either. I've turned a lot of younger. Uh, I I teach guitar and I you know got some younger kids and I've turned so many of them on to this particular record. You know because I <laughs> I feel like I'm paying it forward because I was robbed of this record when I was your age. I didn't get it until I was in my twenties. Well, God, you're <laughs> and you're gonna hear this. I want you to have nostalgic feelings towards it because you deserve it. You know, <laughs> so I, I was robbed of that. <laughs>
uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the the book about Cheap Trick that Mike Hayes wrote. Like in the, I guess in the late '90s, it came out. It's really hard to get now. It's called Reput- Reputation is a Fragile Thing. And oh, I don't know that. He tells a story in there that uh, when Jack Douglas went, went first went to see the band, he went to this place in Waukesha, Wisconsin, called the Sunset Bowl, and basically that night, I was living across the street. I was an infant living across the street from the Sunset Bowl, literally, with my parents. The, oh, wow. the night that Jack Douglas went and saw <laughs> Cheap Trick. Wow. Um, Something was in the air that night. And that's yeah. why you're such a big, big <laughs> They followed a star to the north. And they <laughs> There's a great story in that, that Cheap Trick book about how when the band went to New York to record the first album, on September 16th, this if I had a time machine, this is where I would go. September 16th, uh, I guess, what? 76 76 they uh they played three one-hour sets at max's kansas city to warm up to for recording the first album wow that would be a good spot to go i think if you had a time machine (laughs) god in 76 at max's kansas who was hanging out all the dolls were there yeah David Johansson, probably Deborah Harry was there. Yeah, jeez. Whoa. And then they went into the record plan and they recorded the first album basically with the same team that had just made Rocks by Aerosmith. So. Yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, that's, that's another thing too. You know, you, you take that production, you know, it, you know back to the, the, the black and white record, you know, and the difference in production between, and it's funny you mentioned New York, uh, the, you know, the first record being done in New York, um, the second record being done in LA, and and it's funny. I've always I've always looked at you know like the New York Dolls' first album compared to their second album. Their first album was uh, you know produced by Todd Rundgren. Their second album was produced by Shadow Morton. And um, it's funny because there's a comparative as a New York Dolls fan. There's a a comparative difference between the first Dolls album and the second Dolls album, where the same as Cheap Trick. It's it, it's more raw. The second one is more polished and poppy, and it's funny because the Dolls' first album also has a black and white cover, and Cheap Tricks has a a color cover, and it, it just always struck me as as oddly parallel. And then now mm-hmm. we're talking about Max's New York Kansas City, City. <laughs> Max's Kansas City. It's kind of kind of weird that, but that 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 pops into my head when I think of, of that contrast. That that's a, that's contrast. an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, people usually think I'm completely out of my mind when I say I like the second Dolls album more than the first, but I just love Too Much Too Soon. I really love that record. It's so much fun. It is. It is. I agree. I'm with you on that, BJ. I like the second one. I like the first one better, but, you know. Just just, for Puss in Boots alone. I mean, (laughs) that song, you know. I but mean, that whole record, you so can, many you, great fun songs. Yeah, that. you just they're listen to that record all the way through, and it's so much fun. It's just a great, fun '70s rock album. I love it. I'll so, take them both. I mean, Nobody, I love the first record yeah, too, yeah. but there's something really special for me about that second album. I I love it. Yeah, but you know, as comparing to Cheap Trick, though, I don't think that In Color is better than the first. Cheap right, Trick right. No, I, no. In, in in difference, exactly. Yeah. But I think that the parallels are striking. Two different producers. Uh, black and white in a color cover. Um, New York and L.A. I was also thinking about that, about how the yeah. first album's New York, second album's L.A. And, of course, when they went to L.A. to record the second album, they did a three-night stint at the Whiskey A Go-Go. That's kind of legendary, and that's another time machine moment <laughs> right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
but but the first album feels New York, and this and, and in color sound feels a little California. I think by contrast, it might be Southern Girls. <laughs> Is that why? <laughs> Speaking of Southern Girls, I read that um, Willie Nelson almost recorded that song for the Urban Cowboy soundtrack. I think it was. Whoa. Oh my God, <laughs> that would have well, been insane. Southern Girls, Southern Girls. All the Southern girls I've loved before. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that Julio going to uh, to in color, um, the production on it, as we said, you know, is a little bit you know poppier, a little bit more accessible, maybe, but not by a lot. You know, just by a little bit. Right. It's what what did you th- what did you think? And have you heard the re-record of in color from the what was it? Recently, maybe ten yeah, years the, ago. Yeah, the famous Steve Albini version. <laughs> yeah, what do you I am not that? a fan of that. Well, for one thing, they never finished it, so all it is basically is the the basic tracks. Well, Rape Man must have been busy that week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was I personally don't really have much of a problem at all with Tom Werman's production and In Color, and I love In Color. Um, I don't either. Yeah, I don't. And so problem. I am. I definitely do not agree with the whole bashing of Tom Werman. And I think saying the Steve Albini version is better is ludicrous because basically, well, I guess it's sort of recorded the way the first album was. It's basically just the band playing the songs live in the studio with, as far as I could tell, basically no overdubs. Robin probably would have redone the vocal, a lot of the vocals, no background vocals. So what the hell is it? It's not. It's right. not a. It's not redoing the. It's not even close to finished. So it's not right. like an actual re-recording of the album. Well, and 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 they went back with Werman on the subsequent studio records, so too. So it's like the, you know they're bashing the sound, but they're but they're using Tom Werman again. Yeah, right? there's been a lot yeah. of rewriting of history, I think, with the, the the unhappiness with In Color. I have a quote from Rick. Um, where is that? I gotta find it. About it's from the time where he's talking about I want you to want me and obviously didn't have a problem with the um yeah so this is Rick I'm not sure when this is from but I think it's from around the time when In Color came out and he says about I want you to want me he says I can picture it in a few years some big bands will cover it with clarinets and muted trombones it's that sort of tune I was thinking of the 30s just sitting on a big stuffed chair listening to the radio so you know that's him basically talking about how it doesn't seem like the production of I Want You to Want Me was 100% Tom Werman's vision. And, you know, I think oh, looking okay. back on it, now they say that they were unhappy with it, but I don't think they were unhappy with it at the time. Because, well, and, like you said, they they went and did two more records with Tom Werman. So, yeah, you it's, know, it's, how it's, unhappy were they? It's right. the song that made them stars. I mean, you know, they, they'll, they'll owe that. They'll owe that fact to that song forever. Well, it's, it's the Budokan version. That's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That that song. So regardless of anything, that song. Well, the, well, but it went to number one in Japan. The, that oh, single. the studio, the yes, color it did. Version. So yeah, the I mean, yeah, which, it was. which led to Budokan. You know, right. so the, the, they owe that. So that you know, they can they can say what they want about, and I'm sure they, you know, it's their record. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but the fact that 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 track that production went to number one in Japan brought them to Budokan and which broke them huge much like Frampton Live did with Peter Frampton back to that guy um <laughs> in the states I mean they you know that's I would be pretty grateful to have a little hit like that 
you know, and, and a little song like that in my catalog. Love it or hate it, it, it it's on vinyl, it's done, it's in the past, enjoy it, you know? And I, I really enjoy the version of I Want You to Want Me on In Color, and I think the, um, I think the production makes sense. I mean, I can see, I can see what, what they were going for, and it's not out of left field, you know, with, the, with what the song was. That's true, yeah. Uh, you know, it took me a while to warm up to it. Again, my first record was at Budokan, so when I, when I got in color afterwards and I heard the studio version of I Want You to Want Me, I was, like, jaw-dropped, like, what is this? It sounds somewhat Sesame Street-esque. You know, where's, <laughs> where's the artillery of at Budokan? You know? right. <laughs> I, I'm missing where's it. screaming Japanese girls? <laughs> So later, you know, after I heard it a few times, I kind of warmed up to it a little bit more. And it's got its charm about it. But, yeah, I mean, to me, the, the, the definitive version of the song is the live version at Budokan. But, you know, and again, if you take, you, you know, when you take the, the whole album, you know, in its entirety, they, they can, you know, I mean, when you got Big Eyes and Down and, and, you know, Southern Girls, Oh, Caroline, I mean, what? I see nothing. I mean, if they're... If maybe the production issue is in that one song, I got to be I that. get it. I, I get it. I can't point to any other moment on In Color where the production seems to be lacking or obtrusive or right, something. Right, man. That Big Eyes detracts. is huge. Downed is brilliant, you know? Yeah, it's recorded can, quite well, actually. Yeah. You yeah, know? I completely agree. And yeah, you've got such amazing songs on that record. Yeah. That, um, and yeah, I think they're great versions of those songs. I've never had an issue with the production. But yeah, it is... Uh, very different. I mean, the contrast between these two albums is insane. I don't know if there's ever been another band in history that put out two records. I mean, In Color came out literally five months after the first album. Right, yeah. And yeah. and it's well, almost like two different bands. You know, it's kind of wow, crazy. Amazing. I've that got amazing. Yeah, I've, I've got some quotes here from Jack Douglas and Tom Werman. Like, Jack Douglas says um, about the first album, he says, I wanted them to sound on record just like they did live, raw and crazy. We did most of the instruments and some of the vocals live in the studio. There were only a couple of songs that needed to be overdubbed. So, the, I mean, that's... And when you listen to the record, that's exactly what you hear, right? It's, I mean, it's evident, yeah, definitely. And Rick said, um, we went for a live feel on that first album. It had this new technique called no overdubbing. <laughs> but then, but then what, Tom, what Tom Werman said about the first album was it was too harsh for most people. 
and that's one awesome thing about that record is you actually harsh is an uh, apt description i would say of the record no, no, and not at all. and it is the kind of thing where you're like yeah fuck most people you know right. <laughs> it's like you're in on it you know when you like cheap trick you're in on something that most people aren't and that's part of what was so cool what's so cool about them and you know stuff like the first album where yeah most people aren't going to get it but that's kind of the way it should be almost i guess and i have i have another quote from tom Werman. uh he said go ahead and make a, a do a remake with rape man and get back to me on that <laughs> <laughs> no okay he didn't say that, say I, I made that up. <laughs> rape man <laughs> well and then well what tom Werman said about in color was he said um i thought we might smooth it out and serve the songs a little better the songs were good enough to try and let them be the main attraction to the album. I tried to enhance the tunes. Instead of saying, this band is so good, just listen to the band, I wanted to say, listen to these songs. And I think that's a great description. Of, so, obviously, the, these two guys had a vision for what they wanted to do, and I think they both totally achieved it. So, Right. Have you, yeah, have, have yeah. you heard the, the demo versions? I think if you get In Color Now, it's got some bonus tracks of Southern Girls and I think Come On, Come On. Yeah. Are, mm -hmm. are, those are pretty raw, but I actually prefer Tom Warman's production on them. Like Southern Girl, I like the guitar on it, but you know, on the record, uh, the, t the original record, I think what Tom Warman does is just sort of smooths it out and it makes it a better, it serves Southern Girls a lot better, you know. Whereas the that demo was pretty raw, and, and it was 1977. Production was getting more lush. It was getting thicker. You know, um, you couldn't make another New York Dolls first album uh, or another Cheap Trick first album. I mean, the times are changing. You know, bands like the new wave of British heavy metal had just begun. So you've got bands like Judas Priest and and the you know these. Well, uh, what was popular? I mean, especially it, in America, was probably what like your uh, Sticks and Journey and yeah. Kansas and these bands that are probably more accessible where if you put the first cheap trick record in the hands of a listener who's used to hearing whatever grand illusion by sticks <laughs> 80 just recoiled in horror uh, <laughs> uh you know they they might they may say that that first cheap trick record is a little rough or harsh you know i guess if it, it, that's the only explanation i can Gather yeah, from record, that because yeah, record companies throwing money in too and say you know we 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 do need to polish this a little bit. I mean that there's that money involved and and uh, it, it's you know and I love Cheap Trick and I don't want to be their opinion. I mean it's their record, it's their it's their thing. But but to look back on it and say we shoulda woulda coulda that's you know that's like looking back in an old high school picture and said I, I shouldn't have wore that shirt. I wish I hadn't had that that particular haircut. So let's go back and retake that picture. And yeah, <laughs> you know, and then and then insert it where it doesn't where it really historically isn't accurate. And, and I think, all five hundred people from their graduating I, class need to own the yeah, reissued I, yearbook from nineteen seventy. Yeah. What happened and and yeah, right, exactly. What <laughs> happened and, and the chronology sorry. in which it happened is part of the history of that band. It's what got them to the next level. The first record got them to In Color. In Color got them to ultimately Budokan, which got them into American living rooms and airwaves. And yeah. and to question that and sit back, you know, they they, they have a right to do that, and I respect that because I love the band, you know. But it just seems so so frivolous and such a waste of time to me, you know. Well, when they made the first album, they had I Want You to Want Me. They had Surrender. Yes, yes, they did. They had Downed. I mean, so imagine, would you rather hear Downed the way it is on In Color or how it might have sounded on the first album? I think I'd probably rather hear it on the way it is on In Color, you know? 
I, oh, okay, they, yeah. I mean, they, they looked at the songs they had and they chose like their darkest, most of their dark, uh, heavier songs or whatever, and to made a certain kind of record on their first album. And I guess Tom Werman looked at the repertoire they had and he's like, this band has hit songs, but they're not going to have a hit the way they did this first record. So I'm going to try to make it more presentable to, you know, more people, I guess. Yeah, some about yeah. songs about serial killers and pedophiles um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. weren't rocking the airwaves quite yet. I guess that would fall under harsh. Harsh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this next tune's a little perverted for you.
yeah. certainly, yeah, like speaking of, because we started uh, at the beginning talking about the musicianship of the band, and I don't know if we talked about Robin Zander and how brilliant he is as a singer. I mean, oh. on the first record, if you go to uh, Ballad of, of TV Violence, it's almost like an Alice Cooper kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, a guy, a guy that can pull that off so effectively and then turn around and sing some of the stuff like Downed or, or whatever on in color, it's the same guy. It's like hard to believe the, the diversity in his voice and how effectively he does each style. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because all the people that, you know, I, I, a little list of, a partial list of people who actually cite him as a main influence reads like, like, you know, you got Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. You got uh, Vince Neil. Oh, whoa. He <laughs> right? Let's go back and listen yeah. to a few more records. But, but, like, you know, then you got Billy Joe Armstrong from freaking Green Day, I you know? That, you right. got uh, Ed, Eddie Vedder. Eddie know? Vedder. Eddie Vedder, you know? So, all the Scott Weiland, you don't, know? Don't so, speak bad of uh, Pearl Jam AD because Craig Smith from Pods and Sods will be. I know, yeah. yeah. I think you angry letter yeah, from Craig. I know. <laughs> but uh, you know, but, but I mean, I, you, Billy Corgan, Axl Rose, Brett Michaels, uh, Sebastian Bach. You know, these these are. I'm not fans of of most of these singers, but um, <laughs> the, the fact that that such a diverse like Eddie Vedder and Axl Rose like couldn't be that's like right, yeah couldn't be more more different. Yet they're still citing the same same lead singers and influence. And I think that 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 only one singer that I've familiar with in the history of pop music that's got a more <laughs> versatile voice than, than Robin Zander would be Paul McCartney as far as Interesting. being, you Paul know, McCartney. he can sing Yesterday and he can sing Helter Skelter and, and can okay, yeah, yeah, he can do like a little Richard kind can, of thing. Or? He can do Blackbird, he yeah. can do, you know, uh, Sgt. Pepper and, 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 and I think that, that, you know, Robin Zander demonstrates that very well on, on Every damn record they do. Yeah. I mean, you think about that, the the, the versatility and, and and the personalities that that his voice has. He's a great a great frontman because he really brings in. Uh, he characterizes the song with his voice. He doesn't have. He's not a Eddie Vedder. Every you know, every song. Every, <laughs> Stop. You know. All right. Vince Neil. But like Vince Neil, right? Okay, Vince Neil. We can agree on, on he's I mean, not a great. I, and I don't mind Motley Crue, but Vince Neil's not the greatest oh, singer. For God's world. sake, you know. I mean, <laughs> and Brett Michaels. I mean, here's these guys who just monotone, nasal, just oh, oh awful. Oh, <laughs> but sorry. I'm, <laughs> wow. You're, uh, He's on a soapbox here. But no, but I'm saying, but but Robin Zander's so great. He influenced all these horrible, all these horrible shitty singers. singers. <laughs> you are I not guess what I'm up speaking to is the diversity. But these singers are so one-dimensional. So you know, so, but you got your Axl Roses and, and your Billy Corgans and and, and these are and Scott Weiland. Like, where does he fit in with Axl Rose? They're so different, yet they still point to the same guy. I guess that's my point. Yeah. Okay. You know. <laughs> You didn't, have, you didn't have to throw 22 uh, fingers keep, under the bus to I make keep, it. I keep looking at Vince Neil on my notes going, ah, oh, Brett Michaels, oh, really? Oh. Well, I've said it before, but, uh, you know, Robin Zander, you know, Rick Nielsen, I think, um, I always say he kind of played, used Robin Zander's voice as another instrument when he wrote songs, and Robin Zander's versatility meant that Rick Nielsen could write any kind of song he wanted. And knew yep. that Robin Zander would be able to pull it off in whatever direction he wanted to take it. So Rick Nielsen could just write anything, right. and Robin Zander would be able to do an amazing job with it. 
And yeah. so that's, yeah, that's a huge part of, I guess, the diversity in Cheap Trick and all the different styles and all the different kinds of songs they did was because Robin Zander could do it all. Yeah. That must be uh, a great thing for Rick Nielsen as a, as a songwriter, just to have that sort of capability. I'm like, well, I just toss this at Robin. He can sing anything. Right. In a terminal. <laughs> Any better sing. <laughs> In a terminal. Oh, God. <laughs> well, so one more thing that I thought we should talk about is this controversy. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it about which is the actual first side of the first album. Oh. <laughs> side A side or side A. one? Yeah. yeah. Because if you look at the record, and also I have the eight track, Hot Love is the first song on the eight track. And if you look at the record, it's pre- it makes it pretty clear according to the layout on the back that sure, the yeah. Hot Love side is the first side. But then when they reissued it on CD in, I don't know, the late 90s, early 2000s, they, they put Hello Kitties as the first song, and they said that that's what they always intended, but it was yeah. just misunderstood. But it's not a misunderstanding if you look at the record. Hot <laughs> Love is the first song. I mean, that's, that's implied by the layout. Yeah. Right. By the back. Yeah. But I, I love the, the audacity and the, well, we don't make B-sides. We don't yeah. you know, That's so kick-ass, There's nothing on man. the B-side. <laughs> side Double A, a. and Side 1. Yeah. Who does that? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a preference? I mean, do you... I, mean, I have to go with Hot Love as the first song because that's what I always thought. And, th- you know, yeah. that's just the first song for me. But if you look at... Hello Kitty's obviously makes perfect sense as the first song. And I think it the does. Ballad of TV Violence makes perfect sense as the closer. And yeah. also, you know, you've got, you've got the first single, Oh Candy, being the last song. But I can't accept He's a Whore on the second side. I, well, what, the, what I can't yeah, take, right. what I can't take, is "Hot Love" not being the first song and "He's a Whore" being on the second side. Well, That's what really. Often, quite often, the the, the uh, record companies would have you put what was intended to be your first single as the first song on side two. That was quite often a, a move back in the day, um, strategically that you would uh, you would end side one with a memorable number, so you can't wait to flip it over. And then when you put it on side two, drop that needle, the very first track is going to be the first single release. That was, that was a, not a rule, but a lot of record labels followed that, uh, followed that, that protocol. Right. Um, so there was an implication there, too. But yeah, Hello Kitties, I mean, that, that, that's nothing but an opening number. Right. You know, so it's, a, yeah, it's debatable. That, that's uh, one for the, for well, the I have to admit, it makes more sense with Hello Kitties as the first song, Ballad of TV Violence as the last song. That does make more sense. And also, yeah. also you've got the second song on the record being Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace, which is a cover. That's kind of weird if you think about right. it. Right. Yeah, I would switch that out with uh, something else. I would put He's a Whore there. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. or put He's a Whore there. Out. Switch out Taxman and he's a whore on track three and on yeah, side, you got your side own track and, listing as well. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I'm looking at Hello Kitty's daddy should have stayed in high school. He's a whore. Cry, cry, oh candy. Side two would read, hot love, hot love, hot love. If Slade was doing Speak it. now, yes. Speak now, forever. Hold with a, your peace. Uh, then Taxman, then Mandicello, then T- TV violence. Mandicello, I love that song, but it does sound like a good side two number, right? Yeah, yeah it does. Great tune though, yeah, man. I love that song. There's not a bad song on. Yeah, I love that little. I like the the you know the just the whole 
way it's mixed kind of yeah it's you know it, like it, mandicello specifically i mean yeah 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 that, that yeah the song the sparseness of it and everything is kind of cool and speak now what an amazing cover have you guys heard the original of that Just terry no well, i was uh when ad showed up here i was asking him about that if he had heard that and knew much about it no no not really familiar with it at all was it released yeah after- it's, a, it's a self-titled album it was actually terry reed's second album it's around like 1970 it's the really terry good reed. it's really good you guys would like it okay he he was offered wasn't he he was offered the uh yes <laughs> vocalist for deep purple spot right after yeah i believe yeah he was but he was also uh, offered the the um the opportunity to join a band with jimmy page that was called the new yardbirds at the time right oh. that he turned down <laughs> oh. famously <laughs> yeah he... oops <laughs> but you know but he had already had his own record deal at the time and um and who would have joined the new yardbirds anyways right you know <laughs> yeah that's gonna go over like a lead balloon yeah right <laughs> thank you drive on drive on <laughs> and and another thing i've thought about is if if terry reed had joined then you never would have got john bonham either because he came along with robert plant so so oh, then right. would it even have been a hit band you know, you can't say right. that just because Terry Reed would have joined instead of Robert Plant that then it would have still been the the same huge band that it became. So right, right. But yeah, that's a yeah, and I believe you're right, Ad. I think he did also turn down a spot in Deep Purple too. Thank God, right? <laughs> Glad he did. He would would he have taken? Um, is it Robert? No, who who's who's the first singer for Deep Purple? Evan Evans. Rod Evans. Oh yeah, uh, Rod Evans. Yeah, he would have. Yeah, he, he would have taken. He, oh, uh, it would have been. Yeah, I don't know if it was. You, before yeah, Ian Gillen, or if he would have been the, the Coverdale ticket. No, Coverdale. no, he, it, it would have been uh, it would have been in be- after Rod Evans, so okay. he would have uh, been instead of Ian Gillen, which is right. we could have we could oh. have Terry Reed, or we could have Jesus Terry Reed superstar. <laughs> Terry Reed superstar. Awesome. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm glad it all worked out. Everything everything turned out fine. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. Way well, Terry Reed never had much of a career, but what's well, so. How did it happen then that the layout of the record seemed to show that Hot Love was the, that was the first side? You know, didn't didn't the band look at that and approve it before it came out? Or you know, that's tough. Yeah, that's tough to say. I mean, they may not have uh, been privy to to it until it was all said and done, and they may have looked at it and said, "No, that's wrong." And then they they get told, "Well, it's done now, so we're not yeah. going back and changing it." Yeah, labels had on your first record. Labels, especially labels like Warner Brothers, Epic back then, Atlantic, they were pretty powerful labels, and they pretty much told you what you know. I, I'm guessing that, and it could have been a, a, a fuck up. Yeah, it, it might have been a mistake, and it was. Hey, they're printed. What are you going to do? What's and I, I, I actually have the A track, and it has that has the same track order with Hot Love at, at the beginning. And I think when it came out on cassette, too, at first, it had Hot Love at the, as the first song. So.
But I do. I guess I do believe that their original intention was the reverse. It's just hard for me to accept after so long loving the album for so long with "Hot Love" as the first song. Yeah, it's just kind of hard to adjust to make the adjustment. But right, right. I yeah, agree. it's interesting too because then uh, didn't uh, uh, T Rex had a, a big hit with a song called "Hot Love" too? Yeah, that, that I think that was either. his first like hit single actually. Yeah. So, you yes. know, the fact that they would start off, you know, the very first song and wonder, you know, crossover fans would go, hot love? What are they doing? A, <laughs> what are they doing a, <laughs> well, for? But again, well, back to the dolls. It wasn't you know? a big hit in, the, in America, but though. There's the, uh, no, not so hot love. And then there was but, also the great Twisted Sister song from Love is for Suckers. Oh, Jesus, I forgot about that one. I love that song, actually. <laughs> I haven't heard that song in so long. I love Twisted Sister. Yeah, I so do I. <laughs> do I need to find Love is for Suckers? I, I, love, I think Love so is for Suckers is great, yeah. Where'd you see it at? Uh, I'm not... Maybe oh, he's gonna go buy it. Fucker. A no, lot of people, a lot of people don't like it, but I love it. I think it's really good. I this mean, there's a, just, there's a couple clunkers on there, but you got to put your makeup on and, and be in a twisted sister kind of mind. You know, it's like <laughs> all right, I'm listening to Twisted Sister. All you all shut up. You know? <laughs> like, I love them. They're one of my favorites, actually. I got come out and play for Christmas and whatever year that was. I was 12 or 13. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I never liked it. I put it on. I was like, huh. No, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> I really yeah. like, there's a song called Killer Be Killed. That's like the only good song on there. Yeah, I remember that one. But yeah, yeah, but yeah it's not, it's not. Love is for Suckers is way, way better than that. So. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll, because I, since I was burned so badly with Come Out and Play, I didn't go <laughs> Love is for Suckers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> I still love Stay Hungry. That's a great record. Oh, that's Highly underrated. Well, there's another record. record that was re-recorded, taking it back to Cheap right? Trick, yeah, like they redid. Oh, and hungry. it was produced by Tom Werman, and they, and they give him shit. Yeah, that's another one where, yeah, they they say they didn't like that production. It's a great record. And you know, Motley Crue did the same thing to Tom Werman, where they went back and said they didn't like what he did. Which one? I guess it must be um, Theater of Pain, which you know they brought they didn't even bring any songs to the table on that record what did they expect <laughs> i think that's a thing like let's get tom Wor- hey everybody yeah. let's get tom worman to do a record then tell everybody it sucks well he did shout at the devil too but i'm not sure if motley crew were saying they were unhappy with that or i'm pretty unhappy with it <laughs> i love that record yeah, that's a great record eh? <laughs> at least give them that one. Nope. You can take. Well, would you, can you give them too fast for love? Even. Yeah, I give them that. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> at least one. You got one out. Of it. Too pa- too fast for that turn you missed there and killed Razzle. Oh, oh, hey, hey easy. Hey. All right, but we digress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about cheap trick. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> so where do you guys go with cheap trick after the first two? I mean, I would I say the first two cheap trick albums are my two favorites. Uh, they just yeah. have the the songs, the best songs. I mean, I've been known to say One on One is my favorite Cheap Trick album just because I love it so much. But, you know, when it comes down to it, those first two records are the best, in my opinion. I would um, take, I, I would go the whole four album package. I would, I, the first three, and I love that formula. God bless Boys to Call, God bless Kiss. Three three studio albums and a live one, and that's an era. That's that's a chunk of time, mm-hmm. you know, and I think they encapsulated the the first three albums, including Heaven Tonight, and then summed it up, put the stamp on it with with the uh, with the live album, and that right there, if if you know, and they did they did some great records after that, some great records, you know, one on one. I love Dream Police. It's a great album. Yeah, Dream Police is cool. But 
that those four albums, including Budokan, it's like somebody goes, "Who? Well, what's this cheap trick that somebody from Mars lands on, you know, on, on our planet?" He goes, "What about this cheap trick?" You hand them those first <laughs> albums, those first four albums. You go, "There, there's your cheap trick." Yeah, I think that's yeah. I think I agree. Much like Blue Oyster Cult was captured that way. Much to me, like Kiss, and that's arguable because there's Destroyer and Love Gun and yeah. and all that. But but man, those. First two, definitely. And, and I got to include Heaven Tonight in there. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant record. And I think it's of that era. It's of that mindset. It's it's yeah. the same band with the same production, essentially, that that's on In, in Color. Um, I think the energy is there that, that is captured on the first album. I believe it's it's part of part of Heaven Tonight as well. And then the capper, man, the cherry, the, the cherry on top is that damn Budokan record. You yeah, know, to yeah. me. Have you and, and um, uh, Bunny? Bunny says in in the book that Budokan's ninety eight percent unaltered. So you know, unlike a lot of those records, it's it's an actual live album. It sounds like it, and it's actually those are Robin's vocals. You know, he didn't go into the studio and redo it. So, well, if you watch any kind of footage from that period, you know, like uh, what were they on Don Kirshner's rock concert and yeah, stuff? Yeah, he sounds amazing on those. You yeah. know, and. There's one that where they're lip syncing, I forget, from the first album period. But the other live stuff that you see, it's like it's I mean, in the bootlegs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, great. I saw them live a number of times. My old manager used to book shows up and down the East Coast at the larger arenas, uh, the Forum in, in Philadelphia, the, or the, not the Forum, the Spectrum, I think it's called. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Baltimore Civic Center, uh, Providence, Rhode Island Civic Center, the big Civic Center up in Portland, Maine, uh, Nassau Coliseum. He used to book all those shows. and. You know, he would book Cheap Trick and bands like Heart, you know, the AX Journey. And uh, every time we saw Cheap Trick, you know, live, and we were literally watching from, from you know, the in between the barrier, you know, the front row and the stage, literally leaning on the stage. And they delivered every time. Robin Zander, his voice didn't crack. He was always strong. The band was always sharp and on top of it. Um, and they were a tremendous live band, you know. Yeah, um, still are. They were, yeah. Again, none of them were virtuosos, but they were masters at their craft. They were masters at being who they were. Bunny Carlos was so damn Bunny Carlos <laughs> on the drums, and he was flawless at it, you know. And, and when you have that kind of strength, and hell, a lot of times they played as a three-piece band. When, when, when Xander's singing, you got three guys, you got a power trio, yeah. you know. And bands like The Who, you know, Led Zeppelin, these guys, you know, they had good nights and they had bad nights. But but these guys, when it was just the three of them playing, when Robin wasn't playing, you know, rhythm guitar, these guys were three badass mofos. <laughs> and they were great, man. Yeah, yeah what I've said great. is, you know, Tom Peterson uh, would always play the rhythm guitar and the bass at the same time, yeah. you know, on a lot of those songs. Yeah, which, yes. and it's insane, and especially because Rick Nielsen always does so much wanking and just will go off on the guitar, and Tom Peterson yeah. is just always holding it down and playing like guitar and bass at the same time. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the best bass uh, tones ever captured on record, actually, is in color on Big Eyes. That's I just love the bass tone on that. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, oh, it's yeah. so full and thick. Well, wasn't uh, wasn't the second lead? On he's a whore. Wasn't that Tom Peterson on bass? Um, I think it was. I think that's. 
Yeah, I think that this on he's a, on the on the studio, the the um I think the second lead is, really? is bass. Yeah, check that out. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I've never you've never been Everybody wrong. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Come on. I think that second lead is uh, Handsome Dick. Yeah, playing. That's good too. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, so AD back in the in the late seventies, like what was the vibe of Cheap Trick? Like how were they viewed? Were they viewed as a band? in the in the genre of like Aerosmith and Kiss or were they like a new wave or punk band where they viewed more like that well to, they you know for me they they carried on the 70s rock tradition that was my perspective my friends really didn't pick up on them at all till surrender hit the charts and then and then once Budokan came out then they became much what Frampton became when Frampton comes alive you know this this superstar pop act uh, in the eyes of my friends, I'm going, no, no, <laughs> you've got this wrong, you know. Um, I always looked at them again, like 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 my bands, you know, like my bands. They they were they were in. I would put them in with with Mott as a rock band, you know, the Dolls as a as as a not a glam band, but as a punk as as a sort of a uh, not certainly not new wave. I don't I don't want to say that, um, but yeah, I mean. I looked at him like like any other band of the time, a good good solid rock and roll band, um, and then yeah, then then Surrender came out. It was a great pop hit. People got hip to it, but uh, it wasn't you know obviously till till Budokan came out. Then to me, at the time, that's when the girls you know I want you to want me. When the girls jump in, it's a pop thing. I, I've always kind of that's my gauge. <laughs> okay. when, when the chicks dig it, it's a pop record. So it kind of went the way. Did you of, have friends that bought the first Cheap Trick record? In no, you? no. That was just you? Just yeah, that? yeah. I was the only one. And How did you hear of it? Just record stores, pedaling up to the record stores. And, you yeah. know, I just, I, I mean, look at that cover, dude. Check yeah. it out. Yeah, look I'm at looking that. at it. Right? I mean, who's that guy? <laughs> right? And that he's guy looks like a police Nielsen. lineup. He's, and look, I'm going, he's pointing oh, to Rick Nielsen. Nielsen. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we talked to Steve West, and, uh, and he talked about how. He used to read Circus and Cream magazine back then when Cheap Trick first came out, and he would see pictures of them. And he his his favorite band was Kiss at the time, and he was a teenager or whatever. And he um he saw these pictures of this band. And he's like, "Who the hell are these guys? What are they doing?" He's, right. He's like, "What is this?" Yeah, and then I when he get... finally heard it, they became his favorite band ever. But when he just saw the pictures, he wasn't even interested because he wanted guys that looked like Aerosmith, you know. And, see, and I, he was just like, what is with this guy with the tie and the mustache? If it was visual and, and it didn't have to hit a button like, hey, that's cool. It could be it could hit a button in me like, holy fuck. What? Like like Ron, like uh, Ron Mail from Sparks. Right. You know, like, what is that guy doing? But I'm interested. I'm in. You yeah. know, I'm going to pick up that album and go, I'll, I'll check that out. But again, you know, you look at the song titles and you're going, that sounds like a great Freaking record! I mean, he's a whore. Come on, go <laughs> buy that. Well yeah, well, yeah. One of one of the things that makes them my favorite band is the whole satirical nature of the band, or the the mm-hmm. you're, you're in on a joke. There's so much sense of humor and and all of that yeah. kind of stuff that goes into it. I mean, that's a big part of it. Oh, and the, and yeah. and so much of that is 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 Rick Nielsen and and Bunny Carlos, and then the you know the split image with the two pretty boys on the front cover, and all of that yeah. is so great. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. The upside, you know, and then the, the yeah the pretty boys are on on Harley's, 
on the front, <laughs> yeah. and then the, and then the goof bags are not only in black and white, but they're upside down on the back. You know, yeah, you like, flip it over. Know, that's yeah. like, and then they're on mopeds. I mean, yeah. like, that to me, that's brilliant. And I, I was so into visuals. It, I was so into Alice Cooper. I wanted to show. I wanted. I wanted you to entertain me. I, that's why I loved the Tubes back then. That's why I loved Alex Harvey band back then. Even Sparks. I loved it. They were campy and they were silly. But look at those goofballs. I love that, you know. And <laughs> and then you pick up the, you know, I mean, what's Rick Nielsen doing on the cover of the of the black and of the Cheap Trick album? You know, he's, he's holding, like uh, holding a picture of themselves. Of them, you know, and it's, it's like, an accordion, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's just like, what are you doing? This is fantastic. And then again, you know, and I was big on song titles too. You know, I'd I'd read that stuff, and and, and you're reading down, and you go, okay, Ballad of TV Violence. I'll, I'll take that, you know. And Daddy should have stayed in high school. Okay, I'll take that. And he's a whore. Oh. You know, where do I put my $5 bill? You know, I, I couldn't get it to the counter fast enough. So, Or in BJ's case, my $1 bill. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but so to me, it was appealing on all those levels. And then you drop the needle on it and you go, validated. Good call. <laughs> yeah. You know? But, then, but like, you know, it's appealing on all those levels, but that's only going to be to a certain kind of person. I guess. Yeah, that's that, really and that was get me. It, so, right, yeah. and, and but none of my friends got Alex Harvey. They didn't get Sparks. They, you know, my friends at the time. You know, again, I was a senior in high school in '77 when this thing came out, and um, you know, my friends weren't buying the, these records. They they were buying, you know, the uh, sticks. Yeah, the sticks and the journeys, Boston. the Boston's and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, people, you know, but <laughs> but that that was me again, you know, and. And, uh, yeah. you know, as my friends started picking up, you know, Kiss albums because of Beth, that's when I stopped buying Kiss albums because of <laughs> Beth, you know. And, and oh so the general public, you know, and I seem to be constantly at loggerheads as far as my friends go and the perception of what you was always, going on. You always seem, you must have had like this thing where once... You like bands when they are just your bands and nobody else likes them. Yeah, very and then selfish when, of me. Yes, right. So when they become popular, that's when you dislike them. Yeah. So yeah, that's a strange thing. But dude, two <laughs> words, dude. Two words, Beth. Come on. Two words, Beth. 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 Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, if Beth isn't the greatest Kiss song in the world, it is on. Probably the best Kiss studio album. It sure as hell is. Well, no, I completely uh, disagree with that. Oh no! I would. Oh, good, good for you. I'll right take on. You both on. Welcome home, buddy. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I do. My favorite. I, I, I love. I freaking love Hotter Than Hell. That's my favorite studio album by them. I, I got to give it to uh, Destroyer. Mine's Dressed to Kill, but it's a good one. They're all great. Uh, yeah. But again, I'll take the first three in live, and if I had no other Kiss albums, I'm fine. <laughs> I, that's you know, right? If I had no other, if I had the first three Blue Oyster Cult albums in the live one, and had no other Blue Oyster Cult albums, I'm fine. Give me the four. Oh man, <laughs> you're missing out on so much joy. I don't understand this. No, but Philosophy. I'm not saying. Yeah, you guys I'm, were you guys were set on. I think on your recent episode, you said Mirrors wasn't any good, but I like that album. <laughs> there's some I really thought, good songs yeah, on there. I, there's a, a few good ones, but by and large, it's it's the weakest of of the bunch. I think. I think, yeah, I think the, well, I don't know. Well, I even like Club Ninja, so. <laughs> I don't think I've heard Club Ninja yet, but. I think that, 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 that the concept of the, of the first three, and whether it's two or three or four or whatever, but when the band first comes out, that's who they are before they've been tainted by record company uh, production demands 
and and told you know and molded and shaped. I think that the the bands are more honestly them on those first few albums, and then when they follow up with a live album, that's that's what makes you want to go see them, and that culminates that okay, here's what Cheap Trick is now. Now after that, okay, now we're going to expand our sound and do whatever, and 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 maybe try to sell more records. But to me, when you first come out, that's who you are, and then when you can represent it with a great live album. Boom! I'm not saying anything after that. I'm not interested in because I certainly am. But I think that that's that sets the foundation. That that says to the world, this is who this band was when they first came out. This is what they sound like live. Anything else after that, we'll see what happens. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing that kind of uh, sums up how cheap, cheap Trick kind of straddled the line between the different camps and everything is: I have all the old Trouser Press magazines, or a lot of them. And that was, you know, do you guys know that magazine at all? Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, that was like a new wave punk magazine, almost kind of elitist to a certain extent. You know, definitely rejected anything like Journey or Boston and even like Aerosmith. They wouldn't cover anything like that. They didn't even take it seriously, but they loved Cheap Trick, you know. Right. They had Cheap Trick in there all the time. Ira Robbins, um, they were like his favorite band, you know, so... They were the only band that band that came out of the '70s rock scene, or that could be kind of put in the '70s rock scene that Charles Repress loved. Even you know, they everybody loved Cheap Trick. It, you know, yeah, it's hard to to find something you don't like about Cheap Trick. I can't imagine no, you, you know, going oh, their songs suck. No, they don't. They're beautifully well crafted songs. You had good players. Well, their players suck. No, great riffs. They're great players. Guitar riffs were great. Eh, I don't like the singer. No. Yes, you do. Rob, yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking do. What are you going to say about Cheap Trick? The bass only, only has four strings. <laughs> you got to yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> well, we'll fix that. You yeah. Give us a couple albums. We'll get on that. Yeah. You know? When was that? When did that uh, 12 string first? Was that on Heaven Tonight when he first started playing that? Was that the third record? I think it's on In Color on, uh, Is it? on a couple of the tracks. It's not on all of them. Right? No, I think he was only playing a. 10 string or an 8 string or, or something. maybe um at the time yeah, that's I think a good the, question I'm not sure when the, the first appearance of the, the I, I think the first was. 12 string was I, I want to say heaven tonight I may be wrong I've been wrong once <laughs> <laughs> from the time we started podcasting till, till now that's, just, <laughs> that's once right yeah, it just says bass and vocals on the, yeah. on the vinyl no I think it's I'm going to check that but yeah I, I, I want to say it was it was being built they were working on it but I think the actual twelve string um, showed up on the on the Heaven Tonight record. That might be right. But regardless, man, yeah, you take you take these players individually, pound for pound, against any other band of their day. Take the songs, mm-hmm. take the the melodic aspect, the singability of it. You know, take the riffs because they, although they were singing sugary pop in a weird way, right? The the guitar. I mean, the band was. Pumping the power chords sure. and killer yeah. riffs. I mean, just some great, great riffs in there, man.
Did you guys get to see them when they did the first three albums live, like the three-night stands that they did in the late 90s? No. Like live in person? Yeah, they did. See them now, in concert now. Yeah, I saw them at Irving Plaza in New York. Three nights in a row, they did the entire album, the first three albums. Oh. Yeah. It was ins- I mean, to see them do the first album was just insane. Like, Cry Cry. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah, it was amazing. Great tune. Here's one from the album called Cry Cry.
Well, we're at about 90-something minutes yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, so I'll let you guys go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll do a pretty good editing job on this one, I'm sure. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Rock and roll and vinyl are meant to go together. <laughs> like drummers and strippers. <laughs> That's right. So maybe it's time to hop on down to your local record store and go digging for some lost gems on vinyl and that's exactly what we do here at the shabby road record show we pick selections from our own personal record collections and then we discuss the songs the artists the albums and the stories about the music that you may have never heard and there's nothing more fun than listening to two knuckleheads spinning vinyl and talking music so dive on into the five-star rated podcast the shabby road record show you can subscribe for free on iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher, where there's a new episode released every Tuesday. Also, you can find us on Facebook and at our website, ShabbyRoadRecordShow.com.
And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap tricking. I can't hear the symbols. Dude, the record is all symbols. <laughs> <laughs>